Hello and welcome to our third smart building webinar of 2016. It's called Securing the Internet of Things in Buildings. And I'm delighted to say I've got uh, Hugh Boys on the uh, on the webinar with me today. Hi, Hugh. Hi. Uh, yeah, and obviously really appreciate you taking the time uh, to have a, a Q&A with us. And hopefully we'll get to cover some some really interesting topics around cybersecurity. Uh, just a couple of um, housekeeping points for, for everybody. Uh, we'd love to get some feedback from you guys. So if you do have questions, uh, there's, there's no audio, but you can type them in. It should be on your control panel. And um, I, I'll get them here and I can put those um, questions to Hugh or indeed if you've got anything for myself as well. Happy to answer them. Uh, also, uh, we do record these webinars, so they'll be um, put up on uh, on our website, uh, and obviously we'll share the link, and um, they go out. The link will go out in our newsletter as well when we do that. Um, and then also, just want to say um, a quick thank you uh, to our sponsor, Tridium. Uh, obviously, if you want more information about um, what Tridium do, then please go to their website, tridium.com. Uh, so yeah, without further ado, um, just welcome Hugh Boys. Uh, and Hugh, I thought maybe it'd be best if um, you introduce yourself a little bit. Thank you, James. So I fulfil a number of roles. I'm a principal fellow at the Cybersecurity Centre in WNG at the University of Warwick. Um, there, my interest is very much in cybersecurity of physical systems, or cyber physical systems as we call them. So that involves the built environment, building management systems, um, transport systems, utilities, etc. Um, my day job is acting as a cybersecurity consultant in those areas, um, where I particularly focus on the built environment. And I've written a code of practice for the Institution of Engineering and Technology, uh, specifically on cybersecurity in the built environment. I also act as their cybersecurity lead. So that involves answering questions um, from journalists um, and occasionally from MPs about what's cybersecurity all about, what's, what are the risks and why should we be concerned. So I think that's, that's sort of a good introduction to my background. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And, and I, as I wrote up there as well, and I and obviously looked on your profile, this, um, uh, you're a technical author of one of, uh, one of these specifications. That's right. So I'm, I'm the um, technical author of PAS 1192 Part 5, um, which is titled a mouthful. It's a specification for security-minded building information modeling, digital built environments, and smart asset management. This is something that was commissioned by CPNI, the Centre for Protection of National Infrastructure, and BIS as part of the building information modeling uh, task group, BIM task group's work. The purpose of it is to try and help those in the um, architecture, construction, and engineering industries to understand why they need to be security aware or security minded in the work they're doing. Mm -hmm. Great, okay. Perhaps we can, we can cover that as we go through some topics. Uh, so I thought, you know, as, a, as to, to kick off, it would be, Interesting to get your opinion on sort of where we are in 2016. Um, I know I've had someone describe to me that you know 2015 was kind of the year of the the cyber attack. Where where do we sit now? What are what are the current threats that are facing um, buildings? Um, excuse me, Is that your phone? phone? <laughs> so, so, so we're facing a number of challenges now. Um, much of the focus that we see on cybersecurity in the media tends to be on sort of hacking of companies, hacking of bank accounts, general cyber crime. But the challenge we face in 2016 and beyond is that we're becoming increasingly dependent on internet type technologies, certainly in the built environment and more generally in the way we design our systems. Um, and in my view, not enough attention is being paid to the, the measures we need to protect those systems, particularly where there's any interconnection to 
the internet or anything that looks like the internet. Um, and of course, we now have people talking about the Internet of Things. Well, that's quite an interesting topic in its own right as to what do we actually mean by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we. So, in terms of the sort of threats. So, I was just going to say Karen? we've we've written quite a lot about about that and sort of how it relates to buildings. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. It's an interesting topic. So, I think if we sort of think about the, the threats we're facing, they're quite widespread. We've got the, you know, the traditional problem, malware type problems around things like the botnets. Now, of course, up till now, a botnet has predominantly been somebody's desktop or laptop computer being taken over. But what but do as we you specifically now, mean by uh, botnet? Sorry. So, so a botnet is um, a network of malware infected computers okay. under the control of a single machine or a number of machines. And, and generally what, what we're seeing from botnets in the past has been uh, things like spam attacks. So if some of these machines taken over, it can be used as a source of email, spam emails. Um, some of them have been used for denial of service attacks. So that's what, what they call the distributed denial of service or DDoS. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been a fairly in, sort of endemic problem. It, it carries on today in the sense that um, networks of, of typically Windows-based machines are relatively easy to infect. And once infected and under the control of a, a central command and control computer, those networks can be rented out for cybercrime purposes um, or just general nuisance. Now, one of the interesting features of the, the sort of built environment board is the more embedded computers we put in that are connected to the internet, the greater the risk that those those computers, if not well protected, could turn into the botnets of the future. Mm. And that's kind of inherent in the, in the fact, I mean, I've had sort of IT people say to me before, once you connect something to the internet, you have to assume that um, well, it, it is it just then becomes vulnerable. Like there is, it could well, it could be hacked at any, and it's then up to you to put the security in place to um, to protect it. Of course, yes, very much so. Of course, the challenge we face in, with, with our own sort of desktops and laptops is, you know, if if, if you're prudent, you've installed anti-malware software. Those, that software requires frequent updates. But when we're thinking about sort of building systems, embedded systems, those systems don't typically run anti-malware software because they're not the conventional desktops. Um, they also tend, tend to have quite a long life. So if you think of your average desktop, certainly in the corporate environment, three to five years is, is a typical lifespan. If we're looking at embedded systems, we have systems in the, the national infrastructure today that are 20, 30 years old and are still running DOS and Windows 3 or Windows NT based technology. Hmm. So yeah. looking forward, that presents quite a challenge for us because unless we're going to refresh our infrastructure very frequently, once we've got a, a, a legacy problem, a legacy vulnerability, it's likely it's going to be there for a very long period. And how have you seen, like, say, over the last couple of years or the last three years, have, have these sort of um, botnet attacks, um, <clears throat> kind of architecture of, of cyber attacks, has that changed significantly? Are we seeing different types um, of, you know, of, of attack? Is it evolving? I think the evolution we've seen has generally been it's become more commoditized. Um, so certainly now you can, in a sense, rent denial of service attacks as a service. Um, so they actually there's, there's uh, people that actually rent um, rent out. So when, once they capture the network, when they when, when they get control of these computers, they then actually rent that network out to other people. That's right. right. So, so you, you, you can order it up for a finite period. You can specify the target. Um, 
one of the adverts I saw, they were actually guaranteeing a level of service quality. That if you weren't satisfied, you got your money back. Whether or not you do is debatable, but <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. It's interesting how the market has evolved, as, as it were, in providing that type of service. Mm. Yes, it's illegal, but that doesn't stop people doing it. Sure. But I think if we if we if we think of sort of the other threats that we, we face, this, this you know the, hack, the general hacker threat, be it from organised crime, um, but equally it can be from you know is it with a teenager in their bedroom, um, as we saw with Talk Talk. You know, was that a fifteen-year-old that was involved? Yeah, I'm not. And in that space, yeah, yeah. And in that space, of course, what what's particularly challenging is many of the tools that hackers need to use are actually quite openly available on the internet. Yeah. So again, it's we've seen it becoming sort of commoditized. But are we in danger of sort of playing down the threat? I mean, this kind of view of you know, it's just fifteen-year-olds in their bedroom is. Is that really um, the case? You know, when you, you think about some things that have happened that are seem, or at least from what I read, more sophisticated. For example, <clears throat> yeah, you, you know, state-sponsored cybercrime, and that seems to be getting a bit more publicity now. Yes, I mean, certainly the, the, the top end threats are very much the, the state-sponsored or proxy uh, state-type attacks. Um, and serious organised crime. Um, you know, the, the criminal element is making an awful lot of money out of attacking bank accounts today. Mm. But if they were to change their target and decide that buildings and infrastructure are, are a sort of rich scene of, of funds, that could become quite scary. Mm. We've actually had a question come in, but I, I think it's sort of um, it, it was stuff that we were going to talk about later. But I mean, I think it's worth reading out now and then perhaps that can lead us into some of the other things that we're going to talk about. It says, um, if an office worker's computer gets hacked, what are the ways that building or BMS systems can be attacked, assuming that they are both inside a company's firewall? Um, and, and I think probably that assumes in some way that there, had to, there has to be a connection right, between the BMS and an office, office worker's computer. Or the enterprise system. That's right. So, so if we if we if we start with just that sort of attack vector, you know, mm. clearly one of the big problems we have in trying to defend networks is is, is keeping the the malware or the hacker out. Um, now, increasingly, the sort of the, the style of attack is getting more and more sophisticated. Um, phishing emails can be extremely well crafted. I personally have seen one or two have come to me, and, and you look at them and do a double take. You know, they are very, very realistic. Mm. They do actually look like something from a from the genuine company they're imitating. So, so these emails are designed to get company, uh, so people within companies to click on a link, and then then what that then downloads something to um, an executable file to their computer, something like that. Yes, so, so you've got the two variants. One's you know, click, up, click on a link and it takes you to a malware-infected website. Um, the other one is delivering to you something which purports to be you know, an invoice or some document you, you asked for. And again, it's malware loaded. Hmm. In both scenarios, what they're trying to do is get the malware onto your machine inside the firewall. Hmm. So rather than try, try to hack their way through the firewall, what they want is something inside that's calling out. Now the problem with this is that once you're inside the firewall, unless the the, arc, the sort of security architecture of the network is, is well designed, it's often quite possible to then start traversing through the network. Um, in terms of the protection of the building management systems, the issue we get is where people start connecting their building management system to their enterprise network. Mm. So whilst you wouldn't necessarily expect an employee normally to have access to that system, there may well be bridges between the two networks for all sorts of reasons. So for example, if the facilities management team normally sit on a, a separate um, network, but need to have input from it from 
employees, staff within the building, personnel within the building. There may well be some sort of web portal between the two, mm. or email link between the two. Yeah. So you start to create those links between an area that's already under threat and an area that we'd rather not have under threat. <laughs> right, yeah. What do you think is more of a threat? Because, I mean, obviously what we're talking about there is an attack that can get in inside the firewall. But also, I mean, I was talking to some guys last year and, and they were saying, and they'd actually done some work with sniffing IP addresses of building-related equipment. And they had been able to search for and find um, BMS or, you know, some building equipment just by looking for just by looking through IP addresses, and some of them were secure and some of them weren't secure. And we've also seen um, people hack uh, video cameras, home video cameras, and put up live feeds of them online and things like that. What what do you think is is more of a threat? Well, certainly, the at present one of the as I said the major threats is. Um, Installers of, of those systems, be it building management systems, alarm systems, CCTV systems, being, well, should, should, we, should we say, best naive about the protection they ought to put in place. Um, going back to, I think it was 2013, Google's Sydney office in Australia um, was exposed as being <laughs> connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. um, a white hat hacker based in Australia was doing some research on local IP addresses and stumbled across um, effectively a web login to the Niagara AX building management system for Google's office. Mm. Uh, he had a hunch that it might be worth trying the default username and password and bingo they worked. Mm. Um, that yeah. could change very quickly once you publicised it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things, isn't it? It's, it's this constant um, game, as a sense, right? That, that, that people are trying to find uh, backdoors, ways in, and then it's up to us as the community, but also the manufacturers and the facilities managers and the IT people to close those backdoors and, and keep up with, with what's going on. Absolutely. So what do you, I mean, what do you think that it is that building owners and operators need to know to better protect their buildings right now based on what threats you're seeing? So I think the starting point needs to be that they, they need to accept that sort of security by obscurity is no longer an, an acceptable option. So just hoping that nobody will find that IP address that connects to your building system, to your lift management system, whatever, that's naive. There are search tools out there, things like Shodan, which allow us to, to easily find internet-exposed control systems. Mm -hmm. So starting point ought to be, if you want to connect those types of systems to the internet for some purpose, they need to be adequately protected. Um, so there needs to be something in front of them, firewalls, VPN arrangements, multi-factor authentication that stops people just getting straight through to the front door, as it were. Yeah, let's have a bit of defense put in place. Try and prevent the hacker getting to it in the first place. The second question we have to sort of ask around this is, why do we want to make those connections in the first place? What are, what are the business benefits that are driving that connectivity? And are they actually worth the potential risks? Just because we can connect something doesn't mean we should. Mm. If we, from, if from a sort of you know, the organisation strategic perspective, it needs to make that connection, it needs to then start thinking through what steps to put in place to protect it, who needs access to it, and what countermeasures they should be deploying to ensure that that interface is properly protected. As we know from things like Heartbleed, we're constantly seeing new, new exploits appearing. So it's no good installing something and forgetting about it. If you're going to make that connection, it needs to be managed. The organization needs to have awareness about, about emerging 
vulnerabilities and threats and regularly appraising what it does about them. It's too late to sort of say, oh yes, I did put something up there. Hmm. No, I'm not sure when I last patched it. Now if we look at things like the 10 steps of cybersecurity that the government published, or if we're talking about control systems, the 20 critical controls, those are good practice. It's much better to implement that practice at the outset than wait till you've had an incident, all the cost of cleaning it up, and then saying, well, it would have been avoided if we'd done X. <laughs> so I think we need to start taking responsibility for making those, those connections more secure from the outset. Hmm. So it's about um, putting in place a clear strategy. Absolutely. Um, and then also, and then, I mean, what kind of tools do, do people have, do you have to be able to mitigate risk of side, you know, of people hacking these systems? Well, clearly, depending on what, on what the system is. Okay. We have sort of, in a sense, off-the-shelf off system solutions already. So you can put in, for example, a firewall. You can put in a VPN server. Um, both of those limit access to a system. There is no reason why we should be relying on passwords alone today. You know, it's quite easy to implement multi-factor authentication. And in fact, one of, probably one of the better forms of that is where you're actually relying on those that are authenticating using their mobile phone to authenticate. But you can use the sort of token type devices that you know banks and others use to provide, provide a random key. Any of those mechanisms make it harder. And our aim should be to make it harder. Yeah. So, I mean, should we be looking at, is there somewhere we should be looking? For example, you mentioned banks um, who are doing this well. And we think, well, actually, these are things that we can apply to control systems. Absolutely. Um, I think the other thing we've got to be thinking about is, is sort of systems architectures. So there's, there's published guidance around control system architectures about zoning, use of um, tunnels to connect different zones together with appropriate protection in place. The concept of a flat or relatively flat network should be completely outdated. The other message I think which is important and is not necessarily one that FD wants to hear is that this convergence of architecture is not particularly is not a particularly good thing. So what we're seeing is people saying, oh, we can we can run um, both building management services and the enterprise network over common hardware. That's a very interesting risk to take on. Mm. And what I don't think people fully understand. Because in those scenarios, what you end up with is if you need to take down, say, a switch or a router for maintenance, you could easily be losing some of the building control functionality or security functionality. And would the IT team that are doing that understand the consequences of doing it? Yeah. Yeah, and I actually want to come back to that point later because that's going to, that ties into, I think, really importantly to, you know, this kind of, potential cultural clash between, you know, people who do buildings in inverted commas and, um, and the IT, I, and IT departments. Uh, I've had another question here. Uh, I think it's relevant to, to put this to you now. Can you talk about how a company can perform an audit on their current BMS installations to assess potential threats? So I think what you're saying, you know, is there, are there tools or services available to, to do this? Um, I think the answer to that question is probably proceed with care. I'm aware of, of a couple of incidents where um, organisations have invited in penetration testers to, to look at their building management and alarm systems. Um, this can be quite a high risk situation because in, in at least one of the cases um, the testers went in and did a port scan, which is what they would often do on a normal enterprise network. What they didn't appreciate is the impact of that port scan on the system they were looking at, which became extremely unstable, to the point the only way of actually getting it to operate 
in its normal state was to power the whole lot down and restart. Um, so I think one of the sort of key messages in, in terms of, of doing an audit of, of, of standard building management system or an access control system is when contracting with, with parties to do it, assuming that you haven't got the skills in-house, yeah. make sure that you understand their capability and they genuinely understand what, what they can and can't do on that type of system. Um, because the risks, if you get it wrong, are that you will have a system that could be badly compromised. Yeah. As part of that exercise in trying to sort of understand what your system looks like, I think it's worth looking at um, a couple of those, a couple of the 20 critical controls, because there are two that are particularly relevant. One is having an inventory of your hardware. So that's understanding what, what the system actually looks like in hardware terms. And the other is having the, an up-to-date inventory of the software. So that's understanding what exactly so the software is you're running, what version, what patch state, etc. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, I know this, it may sound basic, but I, I bet there are a lot of companies that don't have this, right? And you obviously you can't protect what you don't know you don't have, right? Exactly. Um, now, if we go back to the Heartbleed incident, which I think is quite an interesting one from a, a sort of building an industrial control system perspective. Just, when just that first in case people don't know what that is, Heartbleed was this backdoor into SSL. Is that that's correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it affected one particular um, release of SSL. And when I initially hit the news, it was all about Mumsnet being hacked because that's that you know that occurred. It caught the press's imagination, and suddenly it was all over the newspapers. What came out fairly soon afterwards was that quite a large number of industrial and building control system suppliers had actually used OpenSSL in their products and they had the affected variant installed in the wild. And the list reads like a who's who of control system manufacturers. Yeah, all the big names are on there. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the challenge for a building owner is, well, am I affected or not? <laughs> because if you don't know whether you've got a particular version of the software installed, how can you assess whether you're at risk? And, and are we talking about embedded systems here? Because obviously for someone like Mumsnet, right, it's a website. You can, they can go and fairly easily update their version of SSL, right, once a patch has been released. Yeah. But... Um, some of this could have been embedded systems, um, because clear, clearly with um, some of the products we're talking about, for example, IP, IP cameras, a number of those actually have embedded um, web servers in them. But equally, it can be things like control workstations. Um, so it may be that your, your, um, your BMS controller, which has both the, the sort of in-house internal um, human machine interface but also provides remote access that could easily be be part of the problem set but that's why understanding what your as it were estate looks like in terms of, of software and hardware becomes really important because if you know you've got a, a vulnerability like that in place then you can start working out whether you need to put countermeasures in place or not yeah Absolutely. So uh, just go on and pull up um, a slide. And I know we discussed this when we were talking about content for this webinar. And you, you thought it would be a good idea to show this. Um, and it's, it's a diagram of, um, <clears throat> which is on our website. It shows some of the different systems in buildings. Um, what, what did you want to draw out from this? The fact that, you know, what we're dealing with and what what is applicable to be uh, or what is um, a threat so i think what's, what's particularly interesting with this this diagram james is initially you look at it and you think you've got a series of, of fairly disparate lines there yeah so, so if we take say the sort of purpley line that's going up through the center of the diagram 
you know, th those are all things on there, things like audiovisual, um, HR, time attendance, analytics, ERP, CRM, all things that you would have re resident on an enterprise network. And you would think have very little to do with management of buildings. Then we've got the, the sort of yellowy line, or mustard colored line that's running up to it, to the right of it. And that's looking at, at sort of key things like lighting control, energy, management, etc. Now many people wouldn't expect those two lines to be connected. But what's interesting, the way you portrayed it, and it's what's happening on the ground, is that little dotted line between the two X's on those lines. Yeah. Well, what we're seeing is connection between the two. And we're seeing it often for quite good business reasons. Um, so, for example, if a company organisation is trying to monitor its, its energy usage um, by site, by floor, by, by plant, it may well have installed sub-metering and wants to collect that data and route it into, for example, its ERP system or into its data warehouse. And the simplest way of doing that is making some form of network connection between the two systems. But of course that then means you've, you've got a route for a hacker or for malware to pass between them. And actually when you look at all these lines and boxes that were on this diagram, increasingly we're seeing that level of interconnection because people are trying to push towards the smart office, the smart building. And the implication there is that we're sharing data between disparate systems and we're capturing data in data warehouses or data pools for later analysis. Now what I'd like to draw out from this is, okay, I understand the need for that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried about the architecture we put in place and do a proper security appraisal of it before we make the connections. Yeah, and, and I think also it's, it's in a sense, it's about ownership as well. You know, um, there, there has to be a responsibility, I guess, when things are integrated and joined up. And as you said, somebody there has to be, has to make the security appraisal. Is this the right thing to do? How are we going to do it? <clears throat> do we have the, uh, you know, do we have a, as you were talking about earlier, um, a full audit of what what software is on these different um, building management or building automation systems, uh, and then what hardware we have. Who who do you think is going to take responsibility for these kind of for, for these kind of actions? So that's that's both an interesting question and an interesting challenge. Because at present we're dealing with potentially two very diverse communities. So traditionally, the building systems um, might might be run and managed by an FM contractor or, or um, a site engineering manager. Um, whereas the ERP type systems and the corporate network will be run by the IT department. And we're faced there by in some ways, a bit of a clash of cultures. Um, the nature of the, the building systems is often quite different, or has to be quite different to the desktop environment. Um, clearly, the way we design those systems in the past and today, there is technology in there that many IT, heads of IT, CISOs don't really understand. And going forward, we do actually need to plug that skills, skills and knowledge gap. Um, and that's an area that the Institution of Engineering and Technology is very interested in, because if we don't achieve that understanding, we're going to see more mistakes made where people say, oh, I can just connect A to B, not realizing the potential damage that can be done in both security and safety terms. Do you think there are enough um well, I think I know the answer for, for part of this in terms of sort of building automation, but even in the IT world, are there enough cybersecurity, well, experts or at least professionals to cope with, you know, all of the data that we're putting on networks now and all of the, all the information systems? Are, are we, are, is there a skill shortage? Absolutely. Um, in, in both areas. 
and we, the skill shortage in the in the sort of conventional IT space is, I think, fairly well understood. Um, and certainly, it's become one of those sort of hot recruitment areas. But in the engineering systems space, I think it's barely understood today. Um, and what we've been relying on up till now has been the the separation between systems. Right, and I think as you sort of said, um, this clash of cultures. Right, so so from what we're doing essentially is putting these building systems online. Um, and it's guys that are coming from more of an engineering background, let's say, not so much of an IT background, although I think obviously that's changing. Um, but is there, is, is there enough of an understanding, right, of, of the cybersecurity element? And, are, and are, are these engineers learning about this? Are they being taught it? Um, I would say it's still very early days at that. I, I mean, there is there is slow progress being made. Certainly, the, the Engineering Council um, is very well aware of some of the issues around this. Um, there is some work underway to actually produce some guidance for, for the engineering community about security in general, not just cyber security, but the, the whole sort of physical personnel and cyber security that sh they should be concerned about, both in personal and professional lives. As it affects technology, I think the other thing that is at times quite a hindrance is so often when you hear people talking about security, cybersecurity, they talk about the sort of CIA triad: confidentiality, integrity, and availability. We've been doing quite a lot of work at Warwick um, University around this, and actually believe that model is. Uh, not very helpful when you're looking at engineering systems. Um, we've actually done some work around a thing called the Parkerian Hexad, which adds in things like utility, uh, authenticity, aspects of control or possession of systems. And we augmented it by saying we also need to take into account security and resilience. Because you can't have a, a safe sorry, safety and resilience, because you can't really have a safe system if it's not appropriately secured. So if somebody can go in and tamper with set points on heating, the operation of valves, etc., that's quite easy to, to in, in that case, to create safety situations. So in order to make sure that our systems are operating safely, we ought to be aware of the security needs as well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One one of the other questions I have for you, um, and by the way, you know, anyone listening in, um, feel free to uh, to put questions to to Hugh or myself. Um, is this concept, and we've written about this, about actually not just having different networks for you know building automation and then uh, enterprise, but also using by putting all of this information on the same network. So having, you know, your access control data flow through the, the same wires as, um, uh, as, as your enterprise information. And, you know, there is benefits from that in terms of cost, of course, because it means like lower installation costs. But, but what are the, how do you view that with your, you know, from the cybersecurity aspect? I think that convergence of systems is extremely worrying. Um, and as I mentioned earlier in the webinar, you know, there is the issue about maintenance of key components. But I think that I think it can also open up some interesting back doors. So I was on a site last year and was asked to have a look at the security around their access control system, or access control and CCTV systems. And th th so this was a this was a building or a multi multi tenant building a, a building within a, within a secure perimeter. Okay. Uh, so you couldn't actually get to the front door of the building without going through a sort of sec security turnstile or swiping a swiping a badge to get through the, through the through the, the vehicle gate. And what was quite interesting when I, when I was was walking around the site and talking to the to the sort of engineering team in charge 
was I asked about the connections from the badge readers and the cameras back into the building. You know, what protection there was between those IP connected devices and, and the, the network in the building. And what, what it turned out was there was nothing there. So actually if you removed either a camera or a badge reader that's sitting on the public fence line, you had direct electrical connectivity with the core system, access control and CCTV systems in the building. That seemed to me quite staggering. <laughs> that you're actually providing you know, an ele electronic access point that is effectively poorly defended and it wouldn't take very much doing to remove one of those devices and connect to it. What they should really have put in, put in place, and what hopes they've now done it, um, would actually be things like a firewall between the two to, to limit what, what could access the internal systems. But this came as sort of a bit of a shock to them because they hadn't thought about you know, the fact that they've got a pro as it were, a network probe sitting outside their secure perimeter. Of course, that's getting even more challenging now we're looking at the use of wireless networking. So quite a few of the system manufacturers are saying, well, we can save you money on the installation, we'll, we'll use wireless. Right, and that was another question for me because this the security implications of wireless, right? I, I think those are even more serious than the wired connections. So if we think about the use of, say, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, which are two of the common technologies in use, although there are actually about a dozen different wireless technologies available. Sure. Um, either of those, you know, you're transmitting data over an RF link. Um, that means it can flow outside of the space that it's being transmitted in. You can sit outside buildings with Wi-Fi and access them. Um, but but this, a lot of this is, you would assume that this is encrypted data, right? And I know that's been an assumption, but let's just assume that for a second. I mean, it isn't, is it, is it not particularly easy, for example, to, um, I mean, although you could find that, that Bluetooth uh, network, let's say, or that connection between two things, it, I mean, it, it isn't very easy to, to then get into it, is it? Or am I wrong? Well, Bluetooth is a classic because typically the, the pairing arrangement only, only requires a relatively short code, sort of pin code of four characters. Um, so if you can find a way of allowing allowing your external device to get onto the network, four digits is hardly secure. Mm. Talking about Wi-Fi, which is quite a common sort of bearer of signals around sites, there are plenty of open source tools available to effectively attack Wi-Fi networks. And then it's just down to your computing power and skill as to how quickly you get in. Yes, there are some countermeasures that can be deployed, but you've got to understand how to do that and how to secure that wireless network. Right, and I, that doesn't. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say. So, for example, I mean, that would explain why, let's say, when you go into an office. They generally now have a separate Wi-Fi network for guests, as opposed to one for employees. And that's, that, that, I mean, that's, a, well, that's definitely an attempt to sort of partition the networks. Yeah. Um, so clearly, if you're going to an office building and they've got a guest guest network, what they're doing there is trying to prevent you getting onto, as it, it were, the enterprise network. And they're potentially routing you onto a separate network, which just has say internet access. Mm -hmm. It might have limit, li limited access to, to say port 80 and port 443, so you can do normal web browsing, but nothing else. Um, I think the other factor we have to consider when, when we're using wireless networking or wireless technology within control systems is that wireless can be interfered with and jammed. That could be intentional or it could be accidental. So I'm aware of a situation on one site where the operational Wi-Fi was falling over and when they investigated the cause of it was a temporary traffic light outside the building. 
which happen to be transmitting on exactly the same frequencies as their office Wi-Fi. Well, okay, so in effect, it was it was inadvertently jamming their signal. Exactly. Right, okay. So that wasn't yeah, a malicious attack, but it's nevertheless it was effectively an attack on their infrastructure. Yeah. 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 Is there one particular Wi-Fi? Wait, sorry, one RF or wireless communication that that is that is more secure than 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 others? You know, I'm thinking Zigbee or Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. I mean, there's various strains of them now. I would argue not. I mean, all all of them potentially can be exploited in different ways. Um, the nature of the exploits will depend on what you're trying to do. But the minute you come out of a cable, as it were, or a fibre, you're exposing yourself at a to interception and b to interference. Hmm. Um, I think the other factor that often isn't understood is that whilst it might be great that the connectivity within the building when you first install and commission it, what happens when you, when you have partitions being moved or, or equipment and furniture put into the offices? You can start off with quite a benign, easy to manage environment, but suddenly once people start moving things in, the RF environment can get very cluttered, you know, because if, you, if you've installed the building control system using, say, Wi-Fi, and you haven't got the office network up and running using Wi-Fi at the same time, are you actually going to end up on channels that clash? Yeah, and I've I've heard systems integrators talk about that, where they're saying, you know, especially in like let's say multi-tenant offices or places like that, you know, it, when walls get moved around, it does very much affect the propagation of. Of, of, of wireless and and it's an it's an annoyance for them because it then could mean that systems get affected, right? Absolutely. Uh, and when, we, when we're talking about critical, well, or in inverted commas, critical systems, you know, that open doors or you know control the building, then um, <clears throat> it's it's more important than let's say not being able to connect to the internet if you know and answer your emails. Very much so. And I think the other people, thing people need to be aware of when using wireless networking is if you're looking in sort of commercial buildings, you're often looking in quite congested environments in, sort of, in terms of the RF spectrum. And the type of um, access points that are put in have quite a lot of power. They're intended to be like that because they're trying to cover quite large footprints. So, you know, the fact you move in and your environment's quiet, well, what happens when somebody moves into an office next door or just across the street and starts working on exactly the same channels as you're on? Mm. Yeah, um, very, very interesting. Got a, a couple of questions here. Uh, first one, um, how do you protect sub-networks such as low-level networks? Is it possible to connect... Um, I think to mechanical systems and hack the system upstream. So, I mean, if we looked at a building management system, I mean, or, you know, I mean, even you could say elevator or, so, or whatever. I mean, I guess there are different levels and depending on their architecture, but a lot of the system is mechanical, right? And would have some embedded control. And then you've got a higher level control, which is mainly the software that is pulling data in and out. Um, I mean, in answer to that, it, it, it depends a lot on what, what type of connectivity you're looking at. If by hack we mean, you know, could, could you get from a an IP-connected control device, be it a sensor or actuator, back up into the building control network and beyond into the enterprise network? The answer to that is it comes down to the skill of whoever's trying to do it. Um, and it may or may not be possible, depending on the system architecture. What's quite interesting, if, if we think of hacking in the widest sense, is that I know one or two um, system, system engineering managers are now getting quite concerned about the vulnerability of their sensors. Um, based on a conversation a colleague had with one of them, 
he's kept awake at night potentially by the worry about these relatively cheap, relatively insecure sensors are controlling his production systems. Um, what happens if somebody starts playing around with the, the sensors and, and starts changing, you know, feeding effectively false data in? Could that cause him to be start to overproduce or underproduce his product? Um, because those systems, you know, tend to just rely on the sensor to give them a value, and there's very little thought about whether the, whether or not the value is the correct one, because they were designed as sort of a trusted system. Right. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, so you putting that in that to, like you said, create overproduction or underproduction. In yes. So putting that in a building context, yeah. If I if I were to persuade a uh, temperature sensor or air conditioning sensor that the room was actually cooler or hotter than it is, I could persuade the system to either heat or cool it more than was needed. Because you break that closed loop. And that of course could have energy efficiency implications, it could make the the, the space uninhabitable or if we're looking at a conditioning environment that's, that's related to the storage of something that's temperature sensitive, it could harm the, the quality and longevity of that product. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, other question here. Um, with IoT, uh, Internet of Things, pushing towards new applications that use BMS data, and gives the example of obviously like smart conference room, so occupancy data, etc. Um, having sort of segmented networks is not a realistic architecture, right? If um, if you want to effectively combine this data, um, is this something you agree with? I mean, how can we how can we sort of create smarter systems? that share this type of data and still maintain the, the appropriate level of security? I think a lot of it depends on how smart we really want the space and whether it's whether that's actually truly a benefit. Um, I've been into a number of relatively smart buildings over the last year or two. And a comment I've I've heard from quite often from building occupants is, I don't understand how all this works. Um, I was in a building recently where it's had a, had a, a refresh of audiovisual equipment, and the setup in the room was actually so complex that they had to go and dig out one of the facilities team to come and explain how just to, how to connect up a laptop, because none of us there, and we're all fairly technically literate, could actually make it work. I think when we look at the, you know, some of the sort of smart agenda, you have to ask, is it actually that smart, or are we just putting in more, more and more complexity for the sake of it? If we're looking at some of those facilities, like, say, smart room booking, great. What we need to do is ensure that the way we link, say, the Outlook calendars or the Enterprise calendar through to the display by the door has a degree of security built in. Mm. The display by the door is likely to be on a building system, whereas the calendar is, is almost certainly going to be sitting on the Enterprise system. I'm not saying we shouldn't make that connection. It's just thinking, thinking quite hard about how the data gets across and what steps we put in place to pr pr prevent that access system system access turning into a person-to-person -person access? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we did a webinar earlier in the year with um, with <clears throat> with a really insightful guy, and he actually was talking about smart buildings, and he said a smart building is is one that doesn't make the occupant or the user feel dumb. <laughs> I think there is obviously quite a lot of truth in that. Absolutely. Yeah. But so if we just, I mean, assume that, and, and I know what you're saying, this is obviously from, we have to think about this, you know, uh, and take a step back sometimes and think, you know, really, why are we doing this? 
But let's say there is the business case and there is a case for, let's say, connecting two systems together. Is there a way to do that securely? But I mean, would you advocate keeping things on separate networks, for example, and, and making and then limiting the amount, the number of connections? Or does it make more sense to, you know, actually have these systems working on one on one network? Um, I think there's a great benefit in having them on separate networks. Be that in the sense of physically separated, as in completely separate cabling, switches, routers, etc., or separated in terms of using um, virtual networks, subnetting, etc. And then thinking quite carefully about how you actually get the information between exchange of information between the two networks. Because clearly, one of the one, one of the issues, and if we if we look at say the target. Um, incident in the States. Yeah, there we had a an HVAC supplier whose credentials for the for the supplier's portal were compromised in some way. And through the use of that, the the, the hackers, attackers managed to get through from what should have been a, a sort of facilities management network, facilities only network, onto the shop uh, as well, shop floor point of sale network. Right, and then they stole uh, the data of the their customers. Exactly, right. and you have to ask well, how how can you get to that position? Yeah, the whole sort of PCI DSS sort of mantra is that you're trying to protect those financial transaction networks. So, what was it that that organisation did or failed to do in terms of its overall network architecture that allowed that connectivity? Okay, it was a very determined attacker, very skilled. We obviously had a fair amount of time to do it. And from what I've read in the press, it suggests that the defense, the network management, network, network defense team didn't spot, you know, as it were, repeated things that should have caused alarm. But I think what is, what is interesting from a sort of security sort of model perspective is why were those two networks connected in a way that allowed them to tra traverse between them? Because they should have been quite separate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, we're kind of running out of time here, Hugh. And it's a shame because I think there is so much to talk about with this issue. Um, so, I mean... Where can, if people want more information about what you do and or, or indeed wanted to contact you, where, where's an sort of appropriate place to go? Um, in terms of what, of, of what I do, the IET website, which is www.theiet.org, has got a, uh, a free download. Um, on cyber resilience and cybersecurity in the built environment. And there's a code of practice which IT standards sell, um, which contains some more detailed guidance. Great. I, questions I, will, I will put a link of, up on that on our website as well. It sounds very interesting. Um, the the doc document I wrote for BSI is PAS 1192 Part 5. That's currently available for free download from. Um, from BSI's website. It's unusual to have a free download, but government have been sponsoring it, so I would encourage attendees, if they're, if they're interested in that, to get on and download it whilst it's still free. Another really good source of advice on cybersecurity in general is CPNI's website, uh, www.cpni.gov.uk. And they don't just look at cybersecurity, they also look at personnel and physical security. Great. Okay. Well, yep. I'll include those those links. Um, so I'll be posting the audio of this up uh, tomorrow, and I will on that page I'll include the links that that Hugh um, has just been talking about. Uh, just quick. Like to yep. Sorry. Go ahead. If they'd like to contact me, the best route is through um, Warwick University. Um, I've got a page on the cybersecurity or WMG staff website. Um, so you should be able to find me there. 
Great. Okay. And just from me, I wanted to say uh, that we will be in April. We'll be doing a webinar on the security industry in China. There's a lot going on there at the moment. I'm going to be speaking to the guy that runs um, a security association in China, so covering mainly video surveillance. And also, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're publishing a new report on smart buildings and how they're interacting with uh, smart grids. So obviously, that's that's looking at software. Uh, yeah, and also just remains to say uh, thank you to our sponsors, Tridium. Uh, also, of course, thanks to you for um, you know for for that insight. Really, really useful. And and obviously, thanks to everyone for listening. And um, I will be posting up the audio tomorrow. So yeah, thanks again, Hugh. That's okay. Thanks, James. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.